0: Hello and welcome or welcome back to the podcast where research transforms lives. I'm Dr Rosie Anderson and every Thursday this summer I'm inviting you to take a deep dive with me into the UCL research that has changed the world around you. Do you remember what you were doing the night before the first lockdown, more than two years ago? Today's guests did not spend it panic buying loo roll or looking up banana bread recipes. They were having a pint and a chat, a chat about how to build a new breathing machine. A chat about how to keep the NHS from collapsing under the demand for ventilators and intensive care beds that in March 2020 did not exist. Because my guests this episode are a professor of intensive care medicine and a professor of healthcare engineering, Mervyn Singer and Becky Shipley. The cheap, simple breathing machine they created, UCL Ventura, was designed and delivered to hospitals in just a few weeks. It not only helped save the lives of thousands of COVID patients like Roop, who we will hear from too, but it also allowed hospitals to keep precious intensive care beds for the people who needed them most. Inventing a new breathing support machine was only the beginning though. Getting it out to hospitals and patients would take the backing of the UK government and the NHS. Normally, that can take years, and our researchers only had a few days and to Neil Maguire, at the time the Clinical Director of Medical Devices at the MHRA, the UK's Medical Devices Regulator. Join us in a tale of trust, risk, continuous positive airflow, an ill-fated Christmas dinner, and the last pint before lockdown. Welcome. Uh, <laughs> thank you for joining me. Um, so yeah, thank you, uh, Becky, Mervin, and Neil. When did you become aware? How did you become aware? That there was this looming crisis at the beginning of the pandemic, about not just ventilators but actually about capacity in the system, and how that was a an engineering challenge as well as a healthcare systems or a clinical challenge.
1: Well, from my point of view, as a an intensive care clinician, I would got my mates in China and Italy, and I was getting some feedback as to what was going on there, and. Uh, I remember in early March, uh, one of my Italian colleagues described his hospital to me as a war zone and um, sort of dismissed it as a bit of overkill. But at the same time, you know, A, recognised it was serious and B, subsequently recognised he was right. Mm. Um, So I I think the penny started dropping then for me and... Again, we started talking in the hospital, what if it got to Milan and that region, the Lombardy region, what happens when it migrates to the UK, which it will do. We weren't prepared as a nation, um, unfortunately, compared to the rest of Western Europe. We've got not a huge number of intensive care beds per 100,000 of population. And so our ability to scale up would be limited. And clearly many of these patients with a respiratory virus were getting severe respiratory failure and needing mechanical ventilation. And there were only three and a half thousand ventilators. The government predictions in early March was that 30,000 if not more, patients would need mechanical ventilation. And so the two sums did not add up. It struck me the more logical thing to do was keep people away from ventilators, away from intensive care units. And certainly talking to my colleagues in China and Italy, they'd come to that conclusion the hard way. And they were trying to use non-invasive supports to try and keep people away from ventilators. But at the time,
0: there was a little bit of hesitancy about that, wasn't there, (laughs) about about non-invasive?
1: Yeah, no, very much so. There was, again, it was, in inverted commas, a new disease. And certainly we didn't know a lot of the detail about how infectious would it be. And so there was a lot of paranoia about how would the disease be spread from person to person. Clearly, healthcare workers are at increased risk. And the worry was that so-called aerosol-generating procedures... For example, um, types of ventilation, nebulizers, etc., would increase the risk to the healthcare worker.
0: So, Becky, how did you become aware, as an engineer, that there was this uh, need, and
2: how did you how did you start thinking about it with your colleagues? I think as engineers, we were very much aware that COVID had made it to the UK and that the kind of stresses that would put on the um, NHS and the healthcare system. Um, But for both myself and my colleague, Tim Baker, who's also an engineer in UCR Mechanical Engineering, um, the ventilator challenge kind of really provided a focus. I think that was announced on the Sunday, the 15th of March, um, and was the government's attempt to corral the engineering and manufacturing community to mass manufacture mechanical ventilators. But looking at it, it seemed really unrealistic for non-medical companies to design highly sophisticated machines from scratch to the appropriate standards and mass manufacture them in time to meet the need of COVID patients. Um, so we got chatting to, to MERV. Um, we already knew MERV right, yeah. um, through oh. various kind of connections and collaborations within UCL. Went for a drink one evening and MERV laid down the gauntlet and made the case um, based on his experiences from talking to colleagues in Italy and China for the use of non-invasive ventilators um, or CPAP machines and He made a very compelling case. It seemed very logical and and appealed to our kind of engineering mindset as well. And so we got stuck in.
0: And how big a challenge is that? I mean, so, I mean, both in terms of the timescales, because I know that this happened really quickly, but also, I mean, I'm not an engineer. um, I'm not a clinician. So I don't really know how big a
2: challenge is it to try and create a machine like that? You know, from a standing start, I think, you know, we first went for a drink. It was the 17th of March um, in the UCL House and Rooms Common Room. And I think at that point, the peak of the first surge was due to hit London, the Easter weekend. So we knew we had weeks. And we also knew that anything that we made needed to meet the the regulatory approval. Mm. Um, And that's why Merv suggested from the beginning to start from a... An existing machine, um, the Philips Whisperflow, which is purely mechanical. It's very simple and was previously CE marked, which meant that it had met regulatory standards in the past. So we decided to start by reverse engineering or copying that and then adapting it. So, well, we actually made two versions of the Ventura machine. The Mark 1 was an exact replica of the, of the Whisperflow. The Mark 2 we essentially adapted to minimise how much oxygen it used, which was in response to real concerns about whether um, oxygen supply infrastructure in UK hospitals would hold up.
1: We were entering lockdown. In fact, we met the day before lockdown. Mm. And so it was a case of what could be developed at pace in a lockdown, which didn't require sophisticated electronic circuitry, etc., and then could be mass manufactured obviously gets regulated as well so there were lots of all of these imperatives that had to be decided on quickly and um, I think to be fair we went in completely naive thinking okay <laughs> let's give this a trial. We had no immediate funding at the time from anywhere outside UCL and but there were all these we felt surmountable obstacles in the way however the imperative was to get it done quickly and to engage people to try and obviously help because we couldn't do it alone.
0: I mean, I've, I've been around the universities long enough now to know that that sounds really very intimidating. Like, would would you have done this
2: outside of a pandemic, do you think? <laughs> I think we're all the kind of personalities that would probably give it a shot, but we were, <laughs> we were, we were as, as Merv says, we were probably quite naive going into it all. But I think we knew we had nothing to lose there was a need that needed to be met and you know we felt like we could contribute to it but I don't think we really overanalyzed it we just got stuck in and um, you know mapped out not even (laughs) formally but mentally talking to each other all the different stages of the process and just got on with it and I think we were fortunate that as a team we worked really well together and got on really well together and communicated well Mm. but also that we had very good links into the kind of institutions and bodies that we needed to in order to make it all happen.
1: And the other crucial point was at the time we had a lot of goodwill and uh, there were no other distractions. So Um. uh, amazingly, all of the normal bureaucratic barriers that we have to cope with just disappeared and obviously the whole country rallied behind uh, the health service and yet what can we do and so we were able to call upon the might of in this case you know Mercedes Formula One uh, you know the HPP company who make these miraculous wonderful uh, engines for Formula One machines Mm. and again they immediately put their hands up and said we'll help.
2: Yeah. And I think that was a really nice example of an existing link. So Tim Baker, who's a professor in the mechanical engineering department, had worked in the motorsports industry for many years and then had an ongoing relationship with Mercedes high-performance powertrains. Um, So immediately after coming coming for a drink um, that evening, reached out to them. And at that time, the Australian um, Grand Prix had just been stood down. All the engineers were there on the bench. So um, Andy Carroll, who was the managing director there, responded by saying, do not hesitate to call on the full might of what we can do, and um, I think we took him up on the offer. <laughs> <laughs> so within within four weeks, we'd we'd we basically designed, got through regulatory approval, and mass manufactured ten thousand non-invasive ventilators that subsequently went out across the NHS. So um, they were good to their word. Neil, I want you've been waiting very patiently.
0: I always like watching
2: um
0: <laughs> I mean, you were working at the time for MHRA. Yes. Um, how did you find out that this was in, in the works and what did you think when you heard it?
3: I found out very quickly, um, in as much as Becky and Merv, with all of their contacts, had triggered the, the radar of the senior devices um, person. But we were concentrating on, strangely enough, not letting people do crazy things because as soon as something like this happens, there's a whole bunch of people who come out of the woodwork with great ideas, some of which need encouraging, some of whom need managing, and some of them need arresting and putting away somewhere. Um, Because there are a lot of people who just want to make money, they're willing to cut any corner they can, and our job was trying to damp down the excitement. The ventilator challenge had been announced by the government and we were trying to facilitate that process. But at the same time, we were thinking, this is madness. (laughs) How are people who make cars and vacuum cleaners going to suddenly become ventilator manufacturers when the ventilator manufacturers themselves can't produce enough ventilators? And they've been working at this for tens of years. So we were deeply sceptical, but in a crisis, that's not the right approach. The approach is, right, let's oversee this properly. Let's make sure that whatever comes out of the, the machine is safe. We will support anybody who comes up with an idea until it's obvious that it's not a good idea. Um, the, and the other slant on this, which made it all so much more straightforward, was myself and my colleague were both anaesthetists, and I have a background in intensive care medicine. So we all already understood the language, Mm -hmm. we understood what was needed. You can't afford to shut the door on something that is more straightforward. We knew there weren't enough machines available, Mm -hmm. so anything's worth a conversation. Mm -hmm. So while everybody else was tasked with sort out the ventilator challenge and all of the complexities of that, including the politics and all of those sort of things, and the pressure from government, the press interest, all of those things. I was given the job, you can do CPAP and any accessories to do with ventilation. So implicit in that was the ability to make decisions on my own. Yeah. And so that triggered the first conversation with these guys. Getting a medical device from the drawing board to market is a two to three year process normally. Mm. And we managed through this particular exercise to do it in a fortnight. Actually, I'm going to contradict Neil. OK. <laughs> in that it,
1: it was actually 36 <coughs> hours from when we sent the regulatory file in For them to give what's called derogation in other words approval so it's even better than two weeks and to give Neil his due he was actually giving us a really good steer as to what we needed to have in that regulatory file. I think
2: that was what was really different to normal as well was that if we look back to we had the first drink where we decided to do CPAP on the 17th Um, I think it was within two days we'd started talking to Neil but then it was it was a continuous conversation so we were talking to Neil on a daily basis and he was absolutely clear on exactly what standards um, and what information we needed to provide.
1: To give some idea of the pace that people were working at, so we had the meeting initially over a drink on the Tuesday where we hatched the idea. You know, the Mercedes people came on board. We managed to source two old Whisperflow CPAP devices, one in the anaesthetic department museum and the other... (laughs) Mercedes found on eBay and <laughs> they basically uh, just literally did a whole analysis on the flow rates the metals etc so a perfect replica could be made of the original mm. and they made it so quickly that on the Sunday myself and Dave really tried on ourselves the, uh, you know this working prototype which was a perfect working prototype of the original and then the following Wednesday evening, we did some trials on volunteers to just make sure it it did what it said on the tin. Mm. Got the regulatory file together, manufacturing processes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, the clinical or the volunteer data, and then got that to Neil by the Wednesday evening, and by the Friday lunchtime, we got the rubber stamp.
4: Mm.
2: And then on the Sunday, I think that the Sunday after that was the first day that you put one on a Covid patient, patient in, yeah. the, in the yeah, Covid wow. ICU because at
1: UCLA. N- N- Neil quite rightly said okay we'll give you the approval but just show in a few hospitals that you know it can work and do some limited trials just mm. to make sure that users, doctors, nurses who aren't familiar with the technology can use it safely because it's crucial it's got to be used safely mm. and effectively.
0: The sense of adventure and excitement when Becky, Mervyn and Neil talk about Ventura is palpable and their pride too. But I hope I've managed to convey their profound sense of duty in the face of a new and terrifying disease. One that the most vulnerable of us knew would have serious consequences for them. Ventura was made for them. And Roop was one of those vulnerable patients who found himself struggling to breathe.
4: My name's Roop, I'm Head of Taxation at UCL and I support all the departments across UCL for all kinds of taxation queries, predominantly VAT. I'm fully aware of the development process of the CPAP ventilator that UCL undertook right at the very beginning. I was a little bit involved in um, some of the tax advice in selling the equipment onto the NHS. Just a small contribution, but albeit, I, I feel good that I was involved there. And then I became unwell, was admitted into hospital. My oxygen levels were very low. We knew what the problems were at the time. And on the first day after using a nasal cannula, using a mouth cannula, it became clearly evident that I was deteriorating quite rapidly. And they had one of these ventilators that I hadn't seen in in physical existence and that was the ventilator that they put onto me and immediately it just felt like i'm being driven up the m1 motorway in a convertible car (laughs) the amount of air and oxygen that is being presented to me is just unbelievable and you begin to feel that yes i can breathe now i'm feeling a lot better now Mm. and after one day one night's use of that I felt I'd turned the corner.
0: Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the lead up to that though, the lead up to to being admitted into hospital and um, what that felt like. Because I think it's quite hard for people to imagine what it would be like to struggle to breathe with every breath.
4: The whole family became unwell, family of four, on Christmas Eve. Christmas Day was a little bit difficult at home. We struggled through it Mm -hmm. and on Christmas Day we found out that we were all tested positive. Both my wife and I have various health symptoms so we knew that we were in for a rough ride. Things started deteriorating, our oxygen levels were dropping, we had an oximeter at home, which clearly indicated that we were having difficulty. Mm -hmm. I think my levels dropped to 85 before we called an ambulance. And the ambulance obviously s- clearly saw what the uh, the situation they were presented with and immediately decided that I should be admitted mm. and was taken into Epsom hospital. Mm-hmm. It just felt like having a, a nasty flu mm-hmm. without having any strength whatsoever. Mm. And obviously, if your oxygen levels are gradually mm-hmm. going low, you realize you don't have much strength. So in, in a nutshell. That's exactly what what happened at that time. So what was going through your head as you were realising how ill you were? My wife had already been admitted into Epsom Hospital with COVID. And then I think two days later, I was admitted. So I'm thinking about myself and also family. And then there are two children at home, albeit grown up adults. I still have those two to think about. Mm. Going into hospital, I knew I'm in the right place. Being at home wasn't the place to be.
0: You described this ventilator as like being being driven what was it being driven down the M1 in a yes. sports car. Yes. Which is an apt comparison considering how it was manufactured. What was it like to be able to breathe again in that way?
4: <laughs> Most welcoming <laughs> if you are out of breath when you're even having a conversation. Hmm. And breathing was very difficult. And here is an aid that's now helping you along. Considering I had two previous nasal cannula and a a mouth breathing aid presented to me, those didn't even make any difference whatsoever,
0: Mm.
4: whereas this one did.
0: Mm. And so you say within 24 hours, you had, quote unquote, turned
4: the corner. Yes. So what happened following that? There's no need for me to be in ICU. So they moved in me into a high dependency unit. This is an operating theater that was repurposed into an HDU. So I was there for six days, and then I was reasonably fit enough to be moved into a ward. There I just had the support of a simple nasal cannula to help me breathing along. Having been sent into the ward, I thought, this is brilliant, I'm now on my way. home out of here. But when the doctor says to you that, look, you're on the mend. You can only go home when you can go to the bathroom on your own from here. And the bathroom is just around the corner. To walk yourself to the bathroom and come back unaided, when I say unaided, I mean breathing support, is, 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 a, is a monumental achievement. Even now I, I think about it and I'm ever so grateful for the, the hospital doctors, nurses, cleaning staff even, because sometimes you, you, you create a mess there, mm. and to get that kind of support is, is quite humbling, it really is. Mm. And I wasn't the only one in there, there were 39,500 in hospital at that time.
0: Obviously, that was not the end of the story, though, for you, um, that COVID continues to be yes. something, I mean, it's something that you live
4: with. COVID, really. So having been released to go back home, it took me eight weeks recovery time at home before I could even consider returning to work. Those eight weeks are are not an easy time. It is, it's quite difficult. But we worked our way through it day by day to recover. And I'm here now. And I still continue to thank the NHS staff for continuing to work in the difficult circumstances. People would never appreciate or understand any of that unless they were in the ward, seeing it firsthand themselves. So I know what, what the working conditions were. So I never forget that either. And I, and for that, I say thank you to the NHS staff. And that's probably where I'd want to park my story As
0: Roop says, he was only one of thousands of patients in hospital with COVID that winter. And Ventura has been crucial to many of them, and then thousands more, in their treatment and recovery. In other words, Merv and Becky have been proved right. But in what's becoming a bit of a theme for this series, it's really not as simple as having a great idea and proving that it works. Which is the research part of what we do. There's a world around that idea, and sometimes it's hard to make change happen for reasons that can be good bad or just bureaucratic so what got ventura over the line and so quickly
3: so the real the real thing here was that in very short order following the first conversation is i felt i could trust what was being done yeah but i had to make sure that i could justify it to other people because when the smoke clears there's always somebody who wants to unpick the situation, mm. look for who, who did what and who can we hold accountable for anything that's gone wrong. And I wanted to make sure for UCL and, and Mervyn and Becky and the rest of the team that we had everything sorted out and all our ducks in a row so it couldn't be unpicked in an unfavorable way, because we were all very conscious that these patients were going to get very ill and some were going to die. What we didn't want to do was be contributors. Mm. And one of the the mantras we had at the beginning of the ventilator challenge was better to do without a ventilator than have a bad ventilator, Mm. because a bad ventilator kills people. Mm. Um, And as Mervyn said at the beginning as well, if you don't have the beds, the staff, the training you are on a hiding to nothing no matter what fancy equipment you've got. Mm. So I made these guys go the extra mile in the short period of time just so we had that additional information so I could show anybody who asked, look, this was done in short order, but no corners were cut. And everybody did a fantastic, outstanding job through collaboration based on trust and sound principles.
0: Mm. It's really fascinating listening to you talk about this process because in parallel to you stripping down a whisper flow and rebuilding it from scratch that process was kind of happening with regulatory approval in a way you know you were we were sort of taking apart the principles and saying what are the first principles of what we're trying to do here and how can we how can we build a system that will do the
3: job but maybe do it better or in a more timely, more appropriate way. Absolutely. And I think that the telling thing was that the, there was the, for the ventilator challenge, there was the rapidly manufactured specification document. And based on my experience with these guys, I reproduced one for the CPAP system that then was used by everybody and anybody who wanted to go through that process again. The other thing that was the challenge that the guys have haven't really explored is that we were flying in the face of all the guidelines that had come to that point mm. because all the guidance was being written on the hoof according to whatever we was the, the, the state of the art knowledge. So things were changing overnight, except ventilation was the answer. That was the answer to all equations when this started. And there were lots of back room, background struggles to actually get the recognition that actually ventilation isn't the only answer. Um, And thanks to Mervyn and his dogged determination, um, <laughs> when all everybody else was throwing rocks and cabbages and rotten tomatoes at him because the CPAP, <laughs> what do you know? Um, when actually it turned out to be the answer. And uh, as, and from a regulator perspective, it was very difficult. Why are you helping these people? You should be doing something else. Get involved in PPE or something that isn't your job um, and see how you get on with that. Um, it wasn't plain sailing but it wasn't the time to mess around. So that's why giving the permission was the most important thing and supporting people doing the work. And that's what our team tried to do all the time. No matter who came to the front door, we would give them the opportunity um, and then we'd weed them out as as time went by. Um, So we didn't have patients being treated with cone hats made out of foil.
1: Actually, expanding expanding on that, because it was interesting, it was uh, the hospital, UCH, there was very much the let's go for it, and so we were the first in the country to set up a a sort of pop-up respiratory high-dependency unit. So in other words, the respiratory physicians could decrease the burden on intensive care.
2: I remember having conversations internationally as well, so, for example, talking on a WHO call, and some um, a medic from Harvard medical school popped up and and it, um suggested that you know using CPAP for covid patients was like weaponizing covid for the developing world um and that kind of summarizes the strength of opinion i think at that point in time
0: i'm listening to you all talk and something which i can't help but reflect on is how the cultures that we work in so determine what other people around you say you can do is possible, is desirable. I mean, you, having somebody say that in that WHO call, that must've felt quite, quite difficult actually for somebody to be telling you that that's what you could be doing to patients, to, to staff in hospitals. Um, how do we make it easier rather than harder to do the kind of work that you all, all three of you did?
1: my quick response is there's a lot of lip service played to uh, blue sky approaches but people play safe you can see why it's easier to back a hopeful winner but it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, the blue sky idea may be crazy maybe a complete waste of time but may have substance and if you look back at the history of invention many of the things came out of the blue
2: I think you know looking back there was a lot a lot of support um, that we got within UCL. You know, we reached out to our um, line managers, to the Dean of Engineering, for example. They completely backed us. um, They provided financial support up until the point at which we got government contracts. We reached out to um, David Lomas, who's the Vice Provost for Health. He joined the team and he was utterly instrumental. I mean, I think I emailed him on evening two He replied within minutes and he completely backed us you know he didn't he understood the clinical need because he's a respiratory physician um um, but you know immediately reached out to his contact book and and leveraged all of those relationships and supported us utterly so i think there was there was a lot about the way that ucl operates and the support that we got that meant that
3: we could do what we did i think the other thing from a regulatory perspective is that ucl has got such a fantastic reputation. And so that was an automatic door opener in some ways. So all of that networking and collaboration was built in and that just increased the level of trust. Um, and that that was the key thing, it was trust, professionalism, positive behaviours. So if I said, I want to see this, I saw it. I didn't get, no, we're not doing that. And so many people fell foul of the situation because they thought they knew better, but mm. what they had to do was convince me. So answer my question, convince me, and then I will, I will sign the piece of paper.
2: I think, you know, one thing we haven't perhaps covered is, um, you know, that transparency element was really important to us from the beginning. So we weren't doing any of this. There was no um, desire to make any money out of any of it, but as an example, we ultimately released all of our blueprints, all of the designs and manufacturing instructions um, for free through a zero-cost license so that anyone else in the world could download them and manufacture the devices locally should they want to. And as part of that, we released a full package of all of our data, so all of the healthy volunteer data, all of the bench testing data on how the device is performed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, which was very much in the spirit of being utterly transparent about exactly how these devices worked, what the bounds were on them, um, and you know, so that others could make them and use them in the most effective way.
1: And, and to give MHRN, Neil is due too. Again, other countries have their regulator agencies who then asked Neil for input about what was yep. uh, being manufactured. And yep. again, it was everyone helping each other. And again, we forget that there's a world out there Sometimes. And, you know, every country was, um, I think the WHO actually recognised that 30 countries, developed countries, put uh, embargoes on exporting manufactured equipment, drugs, consumables because of COVID, because they wanted to retain them for their own population. And the UK was one of them. Yep. Um, and so we've got to remember there's a world out there with a lot of people who unfortunately don't have the benefits
0: we do in this country. What was the uptake like when you released those blueprints? What um, it, it, was,
2: it was huge. So um, the blueprints have been downloaded over 2,000 times across 105 countries. There's about 25 countries that have gone through the full um, process from download to manufacture to regulatory approval to deployment into their... Hospitals and actually Neil and their talked talks to many of those regulators, and and they're all other they're all lower middle income countries, and then on top of that the UK government um, and working with various charities, um, we've donated um, or supplied the devices a non profit to lower middle income countries as well, and it's ongoing. You know we're mm. still so tomorrow for example we're meeting with. Um, a company called Alsons which are based in Pakistan who became a manufacturing hub in Pakistan provided the devices across Pakistan but also donated them to neighboring countries so they are visiting the UK and we're meeting with them tomorrow for example and um, there's a team in Paraguay who have just got their final approval for mass manufacture of the devices and they'll be the first medical devices ever to be made in Paraguay and um, so the story continues so if I was
0: to ask each of you, just as a parting uh, question, if you could give one tip to, I don't know, your students or anyone who wants to follow in your footsteps, what would that one tip be?
2: I think I think for me, one of the most important parts that really meant we could progress was um, the people. So um, everyone we reached out to um, was really delighted to come on board and help, but I think it's easy to underestimate how important getting on with people building really good relationships, um, communicating, respecting people is, and I think a lot of other groups fall foul of
3: that. I think the people dimension is vitally important and everything starts with a conversation. Have a sensible conversation, only work with professional people who have integrity. How do you find that out? By working with them. And it's not all about money, but that all those things are impossible. Because then you expose it to the real world. So I, I really can't uh, say. I just know that I've had the marvellous experience working in a small team of people who had one goal um, and everybody was going in the same direction and nobody had an ego at the table. Really important.
1: I think my message, well, to add to those, which I completely agree with, is a sort of never say never attitude. You, you know, you'll get in any walk of life naysayers and. Just because uh, people don't necessarily agree with you doesn't mean they're right and you're wrong. And so you have to have the courage of your convictions and and follow things through, I think.
0: Thank you. Thank you, all of you, for telling your story.
1: (laughs) And neither of us have yet got our Mercedes.
0: (laughs) That's all for now. I hope to see you next time, where I will be talking to Professor Paul Eakins of the Bartlett's Institute for Sustainable Resources about getting industry and governments to recognise the true costs of digging up fossil fuels to burn. If you can't wait until then and want to hear more about the impact of UCL's research on society and the world, then why not take a listen to Made at UCL, presented and produced by our students. Finally, I want to thank Heaton Roop Ruparelia, Professor Becky Shipley, Professor Mervyn Singer and Dr Neil Maguire, our guests and of course you, our listeners. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds bringing together UCL knowledge, insight and expertise through events, digital content and activities that are open to everyone.